the Gerontological Society of America, Meaningful Lives as We Age. Welcome to this GSA Momentum Discussion podcast episode titled Detecting and Addressing Agitation and Alzheimer's Disease, Improving Lives for Older Adults and Their Caregivers. Momentum discussions highlight topics experiencing great momentum in the field of gerontology. I'm delighted to be recording this podcast episode from the podcast booth at GSA 2023 in Tampa, Florida. We do have a lot of background noise here at GSA 2023, but that's exciting. It's because there's 3,700 people in attendance. We're grateful to OATSCA for their support of today's podcast episode. My name is Jen Pettis, and I'm the Director of Strategic Alliances at the Gerontological Society of America, and I'm delighted to serve as the host for today's Momentum Discussion. My guests for today's podcast are great members and good friends of GSA, and they are Dr. Carolyn K. Clevenger, professor at the Nell Hogston Woodruff School of Nursing at Emory University, and the clinical director and a practicing nurse practitioner at Emory Integrated Memory Care, a nurse-led primary care practice for people living with dementia. Dr. Clevenger is joined by her colleague, Laura Metters, a licensed clinical social worker and the administrative director of Emory Integrated Memory Care. Dr. Clevenger and Laura, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule here at GSA in Tampa to share your insights around the common neuropsychiatric condition of agitation and Alzheimer's disease and how it impacts individuals living with Alzheimer's and their caregivers. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, always a pleasure, Jen. Great. Well, let's start talking about agitation and Alzheimer's in general. Dr. Clevenger, can you explain the condition to our audience? Absolutely. So the word agitation is something we've thrown around for a long time in the care of people with dementia. I think in particular, the classic story for nurse practitioners like myself is, you know, in long-term care, you get a call from the staff, the frontline workers, and the report is agitation, which is this global word. And you're sort of like, what does that mean? And I've evolved my practice over the years by asking either direct care staff who are in maybe senior living communities or families to tell, paint me a picture. What does this look like? What are they doing? What are they saying? Trying to get at the root cause and what exactly we're talking about because it's so global, it's been really used as a label to describe almost anything. Although I will say none of it pleasant, right? You clearly know it's a negative connotation and we've got a problem with this person. And so you're really trying to untangle all of that. So very helpfully, our colleagues in geriatric psychiatry and the International Psychogeriatrics Association actually formed a definition. So informed by clinical experts, and they mapped out what does it actually mean when we say agitation from a clinical perspective, if you're making that diagnostic label for someone. So a couple of things. One, that this person does have to have in the setting of dementia, specifically Alzheimer's disease, because we're talking about agitation in Alzheimer's disease, that there's not something else acute going on, like a delirium. This would be really separate from that, that they're not also having active psychosis. That's its own neuropsychiatric symptom and requires its own evaluation and treatment plan. Agitation is something that's been present for a period of time, and it's significant enough that it's it's causing a negative interaction with their social well-being, so their ability to interact with their caregivers in particular, which is literally in some of the risks of agitation, which we'll talk about in a little bit. So once you sort of establish that context and understand the scenario in which you find yourself, then you have these three characteristics or three categories. First of all, we would group the first symptoms under excess motor activity. So this is the person who's restless. Maybe they're pacing, may or may not be exit seeking, but they're restless, they're rummaging. I have a number of people who are packing bags and just sort of going through closets and so forth. The next then is verbal aggression. And so this is someone who is being just maybe disinhibited, but maybe just negative and 
difficult in terms of their verbal responses to many times to people who are caring for them or who are trying to provide care. And then there's physical aggression as well. We would group that as well. So that can be anything from the pinching, biting, kicking, throwing objects, and so forth. We also think that these symptoms, if you're really paying attention and you get a good history, you often find that you often begin with restless motor activity or that excess motor activity, and things escalate through verbal aggression and then to physical aggression. So really helpful then to get people while they're still at that initial category of symptoms to try to get ahead of it. Sure, sure. And so, Laura, Emory Integrated Memory Care, you and your colleagues provide primary care to individuals living with dementia, including Alzheimer's. So how might a caregiver, either a paid caregiver, maybe in a congregate living setting, or a family caregiver, describe agitation to you as a member of their care team? And then can you talk a bit about how it impacts those family givers, how they might really talk about the experience to you? Yeah, I think to Carolyn's point, most of our caregivers, whether they're paid or unpaid, are not calling up the clinic and saying, this person is agitated, they're experiencing symptoms of agitation, they're describing a whole lot of other things. And I think for family caregivers, they do not understand that agitation is a not uncommon experience and symptom that shows up within the disease progression. And so they may be hesitant to describe these symptoms that their person is exhibiting because that why can't I manage this? There's these, he's really angry at me. And so this is a reflection on me as a caregiver, not a reflection of the disease progression. And so I think some caregivers are not as forthcoming about some of these challenges that they're experiencing on a day-to-day basis because of how they think that reflects either upon them or upon their person and their loved one that they are providing care for. So family caregivers are often describing those symptoms that Carolyn described of My person is packing up every day. They're driving me nuts with the bags that are at the front door trying to leave town. I don't know where they think they're going. They're up all night trying to exit the house because they think they're trying to go to work. They're disoriented. They're trying. They're really frustrated about why I won't let them go to work. And so they're keeping me up all night. It's the personality changes of they've never been like this before. I don't understand why. Things don't just roll off their back like they used to. This is not a big deal. Why are they getting so upset? And so these things are much more frequently presenting themselves in just a venting session instead of I am reporting symptoms of agitation to my provider. And so they often don't think to bring it up, I would say, unless providers are asking about it. I think for paid caregivers in a formal setting, whether it's a long-term care setting or somebody that you're bringing into the home, what they report are are different symptoms of agitation. And I want to be really clear that being uncooperative is not a symptom of agitation. So what we get from some assisted living communities and other long-term care settings is paid caregivers who are calling and reporting that this person is really agitated. They didn't want to take a bath today. Well, did you ask them more than once? Did you try different strategies? How did you phrase that question? Who is the person that is asking? So there's lots of different ways to get at uh, what is the context that these symptoms are happening in to really tease out, is this agitation or is this another, is this something else? Is there pain that's involved that is being untreated? Um, But I do think it is not something that is well-defined to the broader community so that they are, uh, there's a lot of education to be done around uh, how we educate people to report these symptoms to their providers as well. So how common of an issue is this, would you say, for people with Alzheimer's? 
It's incredibly common. I would say eight out of 10 patients will experience symptoms of agitation at some point in the disease progression. I think most people associate agitation with the middle stage of Alzheimer's and other types of dementias. I think in the middle stage, people are losing some of their cognitive abilities, but they still have the physical abilities to get in a lot of trouble is what we hear, you know, caregivers, they're just getting into things. But it can really happen at any either or at any point of the disease progression. So in the earlier stages, we think of that as people who are really reactive to situations that might not have been a big deal before. There's now this really uh, a lot of anger around things that uh, would they would not have previously been angry about. The late stages, you think about the people who are, if you've worked in a skilled nursing facility or long-term care, the people who are screaming in the corner, maybe because they are understimulated or just uh, frustrated with whatever their experience is. And so it can happen at any point in the disease progression, and it is very common. I just want to add something that Laura was talking about. So I was thinking about, you know, agitation from the clinician's perspective, and she was adding that family caregiver report was part of a team in the last year that did some social listening and focus groups with both of those parties about the agitation term and how they use it. And what we found is that clinicians do more likely think of it as a symptom uh, because we're thinking about a disease and disease progression and symptoms also help us think about staging. So that is one of those things when I think about have we transitioned to moderate stage? Are we starting to see more neuropsychiatric symptoms, including agitation? And family or informal caregivers definitely saw it more of a personality I think certainly that reflection on them, they were really reading into the meaning of the behavior, which in general, I appreciate. You know, I appreciate thinking about behavior has meaning as a form of communication, but it was more about this person's longstanding personality and how similar or different it was from their longstanding personality. And it makes sense for families in particular, they have this long relationship with this person. And it's very difficult to tease out what is disease and what is the person. And some things may be persistent. Maybe we've always had difficult interactions. Maybe these are very different interactions and that's sort of a stark change for the person. But it really was for families and they've not necessarily thought about this as a symptom, as a clinical meaningful measure that we might think about from an Alzheimer's disease management perspective. Very interesting. That must have been interesting research to be part of. Mm -hmm. So in your practice, Dr. Clevenger, you and your colleagues often see firsthand the burden. And would you share a little more about it on the individual? So when we think of that individual's quality of life, how is this, are these symptoms impacting them? You know, for people living with dementia, living with Alzheimer's disease in particular, you know, one of the most earliest symptoms and progressive symptoms is memory loss, right? So they're amnestic. I think we have to remember that there are lots of forms of memory. So, you know, while this person may not remember the actual interaction that happened, those emotional cues or the feeling that an interaction leaves you with tends to persist. And those are stored in different parts of the brain, right? The more of the emotional or deep brain, less of the cortex. And so for people who are experiencing or expressing agitation, I think there are challenges for their own level of distress, whether or not they're able to necessarily communicate that to you, define it, characterize it. That's a whole other question. But certainly you will see a negative interaction or feeling of, you know, that rummaging, that pacing, that sort of searching for something they can't get to that stays with people. It is, you can watch them get escalated. And so for that reason, I think sometimes families will say they're anxious. What does that look like? And what it looks like are these behaviors of agitation, but they're reading into, like they're upset, they need something. And so you can tell they are in that moment, certainly in some distress, 
and then that distress is not short-lived, right? So we may we distract, we redirect, we try to engage people in something more stimulating, and sometimes you can get past that. But often, you know, many of us, we start our day off with a terrible meeting, for example. The rest of the day, you have that feeling sitting with you and lingering in the back of your mind. Even if I didn't remember the actual interaction itself, I just have that bad feeling. So certainly that distress is there for those people who are experiencing it. Some of my patients who have maybe less of the amnesia, who can recall some things, will say, I know I'm blowing up at them. I know I've been mean. And they feel guilty about it when they're sitting in the the exam room with me. And while we offer both caregiver-only visits and patient and caregiver visits together, if they're doing that together and the caregiver is telling me this is happening and this is what they're saying and doing, and they hear those behaviors about themselves, now we have some acute guilt in the moment. Laura, caregivers often think of dementia as memory loss and don't consider that their loved ones may experience symptoms like this. How do you and your colleagues at Emory Integrated Memory Care help to prepare families for the possibility or perhaps the probability that their, their loved one will experience these symptoms? As I said earlier, education is really important for families to understand that this is not an abnormal part of the disease progression, and that often comes through a lot of education. So we offer formal um, psychoeducational trainings for family caregivers. We offer savvy caregiver. We have sort of one-off trainings with a social worker to prepare families for these are symptoms that are likely to occur, may occur. And here are strategies to help address those behaviors if this is happening for you. Our nurse practitioners do a really good job of providing that anticipatory guidance like Carolyn was talking about. We're entering into the middle stage of this disease progression, and here are things that we would not be surprised to see showing up with your person so that family members are not surprised when they are agitated. If they've done any of the educational classes, they have a plan for how to manage that. But hopefully they're not bringing their loved ones to the hospital or at least know that um, there is a plan, there are resources that we can do something about that within the clinic. So I think that's really helpful. I will say that family members, I think, feel very isolated because this is this is not who their person has been. This is a really, this agitation, this conflict that they're getting into, it's really a difficult burden for them just psychologically and emotionally because they come to caregiving because they have this relationship with the person, but caregiving is definitely has a job to it, right? There are tasks that go with caregiving, but they are in this relationship with the person. Like Carolyn said, it's been decades and decades. It's your spouse, it's your parent, it's your sister, whoever um, the relationship is with. And the interactions for caregivers are something that they are also carrying for a long time, very similar to the patient. So, you know, I had one caregiver who was talking in a group recently where the noise that the dog food made in the dog food bowl just was very upsetting to a person who was living with Alzheimer's disease. And he got very angry at his spouse. Why would you do this? I can't believe you did this. And it was very uncharacteristic response to who this man had been his whole life. And the caregiver is talking about it months later, right? She has all this guilt about, I don't know, I'm walking around on eggshells all of the time because I don't know how to respond to him. I don't know what's going to set him off. So they're carrying a lot of this frustration and burden and just discomfort in the caregiving relationship. And so they have the memory as well of what this experience has been like. And the husband has no idea that dog food was ever a problem. And 
he has no remembrance of this. It hasn't been an ongoing issue. And so I think it's just something that a lot of caregivers think is only happening to them. And again, it's their fault if they're not responding in a different way. And so normalizing that information for a lot of caregivers, I think, provides a lot of support. But this is something that I'm not the only one going through. We have support groups through the clinic where caregivers are able to share these experiences. And then we also have a clinical social worker who does individual and family psychotherapy so that we can help families process these changes that they're um, seeing in their loved one and sort of what that, how that impacts them. And I think this is the power of having a practice that's all three in one. It's primary care, dementia care, caregiver services. Because even if somebody's not going to take advantage of a class or a support group or even some of our one-time sort of just-in-time lecture series, they're still going to be meeting with that dementia care specialist, the nurse practitioner, who's going to say, you know, it's our, here's where we are today. This is where we're headed. I anticipate these things. If I'm not surprised, you shouldn't be surprised. And then for people who would never access a dementia specialty practice, you're going to come to primary care if you're living with any chronic conditions, probably. And so even in that space, you're still going to have this condition addressed. You're still going to get whatever amount of education and coaching you're able to access today. So, you know, our thing is we want to make sure you have that education and coaching in whatever form, in whatever length that you're willing to access or have the capacity to access, even if it's the shortest, we can make it as part of integrated into the visit. And I know if I hear something in a visit, I can say to Jenny, the social worker, hey, this came up. I'm going to have them do therapy individually with you. Someone mentioned something in group. I know about it when I see the patient again. I mean, that's the value of having all of those things in one location. Great. So in our care toolkit, we talk about using quick screening tools for cognitive impairment. Are there such tools for agitation and Alzheimer's disease? There are now. So we're really excited. Part of the team that really started this journey, look, listening to how people were defining agitation in different, coming from different viewpoints. And with that newer definition from the International Psychogeriatrics Association, now we have a well-defined, much better defined than it has been, tool that we can actually use to screen. And the audience in particular, people who see this symptom but don't recognize it as a symptom are family or informal caregivers. And so we now have the ASK tool, and that is to be used as part of your process for doing check-in. Many practices who do dementia specialty are probably doing a form of a screener for neuropsychiatric symptoms broadly. Some of my challenges, and we do as well, some of our challenges in using the more broad tools is that particularly agitation was not well-defined when those were created. So that's sort of one limitation. And you're sort of getting a touch on everything. And sometimes when you're asking a list of 12, 13, 15 things, the definition for people to understand what you mean by some of these symptoms is just uh, really depends heavily on the way the question is worded. You think the ASK tool is, you know, really designed for family caregivers. It uses language that is more family or informal individuals specific. And so I think you'll gather, again, information about something that otherwise may never have been mentioned unless you intentionally ask for it, which is the idea of doing screening tools like this. So in our practice, we're a primary care practice. That means we're going through volume in a day, just like most primary care practices, although we do have longer appointments by intention. So I won't say we're running 15-minute appointments here, but it's still primary care. We're doing all the things. We're making sure your pneumonia shot's caught up right now and your RSV vaccine at the pharmacy, because that's the, what's happening in Georgia uh, in terms of our how we're getting those to patients. So we use tools like this as part of our e-check-in process. So this is gathering the information that you need. You know, we know that the care measures are quality measures for dementia 
to care that you're assessing or screening for neuropsychiatric symptoms every six months. So we can time them that way. We can do them intentionally with something like your cognitive assessment and care planning visit. I will say the ASK tool is one of the shortest. I think, uh, you know, we worked really hard as a team to keep that brief. And it's certainly not going to overwhelm people in terms of the volume of questionnaires you can get in terms of e-check-in sometimes. And so I have two questions and follow-up. The first is you're saying the ASK tool. What does that stand for? <laughs> so ASK is Agitation in Alzheimer's Screener for Caregivers, A-A-S-C. And I understand you are the lead author on sharing that information here at GSA 2023. Can you tell us about that? Yes, so I'm delighted. I have such a robust and excellent team of experts who have worked on this. And so delighted to be the primary author for GSA this year to talk about this screener. So the team includes, you know, geriatric specialists, geriatric psychiatry specialists, neurologists. And so we did pull this tool together. We have done a little bit of testing. So I'll be presenting on some of our earliest testing and qualitative feedback from folks. And then uh, we were able to sort of refine the tool from what we initially built. And then we have, you know, when you're doing a new tool or a new measure, the measure development is like its own science, right? So really delighted to have Dr. Jeff Cummings as part of the team who is very experienced in screeners and measures. And so you can expect, I think, some ongoing validation of studies going on after this. But we'll be talking about what we've done so far, how we've refined it, and I think launching the new website where you can download it. Wonderful. Well, that's terrific that it's happening here with at GSA's annual scientific meeting. Well, once again, this has been a great discussion. Really exciting stuff. Definitely some wonderful information in our podcast, one about how common this symptom is and how significant the impacts are on the individuals. And it's wonderful that there is a new tool that's available for clinicians that family caregivers can just answer a couple of questions and really give that valuable insight. I'll ask you each to leave me with one final point. Last word from you, Laura. I would like families to realize that this is a normal part of the disease progression or can be a very normal part and it is common and so I think it is important that they understand that this is something that they can report to their practitioner, their provider to say that um, my person is experiencing these things and it's exciting that now there are things that can be done but I think it is, I want people to understand that these are symptoms that are a normal part of the process and should be talked about instead of being uh, sort of suffering alone from that process experience. And I would add from the practicing clinician, you know, this is one of those symptoms that can be um, embarrassing to talk about. People feel like they're telling on their person or saying negative things about their person because they don't realize that it is a symptom. They don't realize that it's part of the disease. They really are suffering in silence. And as I mentioned, those symptoms of agitation do tend to escalate. And so as a clinician or running a busy practice, you certainly want to identify a symptom early in its stages and get ahead of it because none of us like to go from crisis to crisis. Otherwise, if you allow something to escalate to crisis level where someone is not physically aggressive, we are dealing with home insecurity and identifying caregiver safety, Let's get at this when we are earlier stage so that we can address it sooner and both improve and protect to preserve the quality of life for the person experiencing it and for the person who's caring for them. Okay, well, thank you both so much for joining me here. Thanks for all your great work and your wonderful contributions to our work at GSA. And enjoy the rest of the meeting. The Gerontological Society of America was founded in 1945 to cultivate excellence in interdisciplinary aging research and education to advance innovations in practice and policy. 
For more information about GSA, visit geron.org, G-E-R-O-N.org.